Is anybody there? Jack, 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 Welcome to Rockstack Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Marison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And for this episode, we are delighted to welcome the dynamic transatlantic duo of Luke Haynes and Peter Buck. Hi, fellas. Hi. Hello. Hi. Luke and Peter combined forces to make 2020's Beat Poetry for Survivalists and this month release their second collaboration, All the Kids Are Super Bummed Out. Great title. We'll talk about the album and we'll also touch on your former bands and their relationships, your relationships with music journalism and music journalists. But Luke, how did you guys hook up in the first place? I do paintings that I sell on the internet from time to time. And I was in a series of Lou Reed paintings and one day Peter's name popped up in my whatever shop, my internet shop, when I was at the doctor's. I was fine, by the way. And I thought, <laughs> is, that, is that Peter Peter Buck? Peter Buck. And so I, and it, I really, obviously it was. I thought, that's, that's great. So I did Peter a painting and I think I sent Peter an email saying, we should do an album together. To which he promptly replied, I'm a bit busy, (laughs) (laughs) if I remember correctly. And then he did it then, I think about a few weeks later, he sent a demo to me. And that's how it started, really. That's that's about right, isn't it, Peter, I think? Yeah, I was... I was actually right in the middle of making a record, and I I thought, that sounds great, but this very day I'm busy. I think a week later, or a week or two later, I wrote and just said, hey, what if I just started sending you stuff? And yeah. If memory serves, the album is chronological in the order I sent them to him. So it is, yeah, yeah. That's the first album. That's beat poetry. Yeah, yeah, yes. And what was your like? Did you have a kind of mission statement for your collaboration? Oh, um, I, I think the, the original thing when you're doing something like that is just to sort of is to kind of dive in and see if it can work, and it. I think it was apparent quite early on that it was working and there was going to be something good going to come out of it. And then it just sort of, my memory of it is that the demos just sort of kind of got better and better. And then the demos became, I suppose, the masters because we didn't kind of re-record anything. We just added stuff. So it was a good way. It was very kind of immediate and it was a very immediate way of working. If there was a mission statement, well, obviously, I mean, you know, it kind of completely predicted COVID, but um, <laughs> that was, was the mission. That to was all right. COVID, yeah. That was okay, you know. Yeah. Given that we knew that was coming, we yeah. think we would have found a better week to put the record out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we <laughs> we we knew we, that's why we did it. You said we wanted to be. We, we could so we could say all this. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because you were going to come and play the 100 Club, weren't you, in literally, like, was it March or April 2020 to promote the record, I think, weren't you? And you had to you had to pull the plug on that. And then and you, you eventually played that two years later. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. and I got COVID on the last show in the middle yeah. of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this sort of poetic sort of Yeah, I felt really spiritual. And I was like, man, I'm really connected to the music. And yeah. then I... <laughs> Then I went, who's that singing? That's really weird. <laughs> yeah. like I just, you know, I had a really high fever, so I had to retire to my motel in Chiswick for 10 days. <laughs> Jeez. 
<laughs> I remember in the show looking round at you when you do your kind of one, you know, you turn around and you kind of do an occasional sort of glance at the kind of the guitar player, you. And uh, I remember like, God, Peter's looking pretty ill. What the, <laughs> yeah, what's going on? So, yeah. So is that, that's going to be the live album, is it? Yeah, it's good. It's good. Good show. Yeah, why not? It's a yeah. good show. Great. Yeah, yeah. Did you, you know, obviously for some people, this is an unlikely marriage of minds and talents. Are there areas of music specific, like inferences that you two cohere around and i'm thinking of you know i listen to both the records and enjoy them very much and i sort of hear little bits of soft boys even the only ones in there and i don't know whether those are things that you have in common or ever talk about like robin hitchcock or anyone like that i've got to say i mean i'll just i'll just jump in and peter can but there has been a few things people there's been a few things when whenever records get reviewed it's kind of they say it's a really strange pairing. I don't really get that at all. I mean, it's why well, I don't know. I don't know why it is because we kind of, you know, we've probably got a lot of records that we listen to in common, and I don't know why. Do you? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Peter? You know, people always ask me about things like this, and I just go, you know, I have more in common with a twenty-one-year-old African-American hip-hop guy than I do with a sixty-year-old white insurance salesman. <laughs> you know, yeah, musicians yeah. have a lot more in common than you might think, and yes, I'm sure we've read a lot of the same books and listened mm. to the same music, and you know, it's it it also this is what you do. You just you write, and I I have friends that I've attempted to write with, and it just doesn't work very well because we have such different ways of writing a song and with luke it was like yeah i sent him a song he did it and i sent him another and he did that it was it seemed simple from my end mm. <laughs> peter do you get a chuckle when lyrics such as andy warhol was not kind come come back back over the the ocean <laughs> well i generally i'm trying to pick up the cultural references that aren't specifically american so you know, like the first song on the first record, the Jack Parsons song. I knew who Jack Parsons was. I have no idea what those kids talking and yelling were about. So <laughs> I had to write Luke, who explained it to me, and I actually found all that stuff on YouTube. So now I'm au fait with those English ghost kids. So, <laughs> right. But, yeah, but, you know, it's a lot of the language is fairly similar, you know, in that, I think that when we grew up playing, I'm sure that Luke listened to the Velvet Underground in the same way that yeah. I did. And, of course, the Beatles. I mean, that was from her kids. All that stuff crosses through there. Yes. And there seems to be a lot of T-Rex in the first one, too. Yeah. I mean, and, I th and that's sort of the kind of the, the sort of the language of pop or rock, whatever you want to call it, or anything else. It's, it tends to be quite – it kind of is a language of its of its own anyway. So I don't, I think that I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, there's the kind of the old – thing about you know english and americans separated by the same language all that kind of nonsense but I don't, and whether, whether that's i don't think that's true in sense of rock and roll music just the english do it in a, a kind of a different way they're just it's just they it's kind of a bit more skewed from the english and but when i notice when i play with americans it's just it's much more kind of it's kind of rock which is in a way that english people can't redo really if that makes any sense at all Yes. Mm. I mean, your lyric writing, Luke, is, has always been very sort of dyspeptic in, in, in a very kind of uh, British way, I would say. And I suppose that that's something that I don't kind of associate with the music that, Peter, you've made over the years. So when I say that it's quite an unusual 
melding of minds. It is a very transatlantic kind of collaboration, isn't it? It's your very. I reread Bad Vibes ahead of this, oh, yeah. and and it and I was just laughing out loud on on the beach in Sifnos. Oh, no. <laughs> we talk. You're asking me where I was, and I was this you know English guy cackling with laughter, at just yeah. the, the, the sheer savagery of your yeah. attacks on your Britpop contemporaries. I yeah. mean, it's, and, and I can hear that same that same sort of wit and humor in in these songs of course you know mm, it's mm. something that's unique to to you i think would that be fair to say i don't know i don't I've never really thought about it to be honest i just uh, uh you know it's all pretty it's all pretty kind of <laughs> it's just uh, the older i get the less the less i think about it and the easier it gets i don't know if that's a good thing or not i mean i might be for all i know i might be just like churning out absolute garbage i mean i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no who knows i mean it's not i mean i think it's all right i think it's pretty good and i've been doing it long enough but i never i never really kind of examined it uh i don't know i think i think if i kind of examined it too much it might be a might be a mistake i'm sure i'm sure peter's never really or maybe i'm wrong <laughs> you just sort of do it don't you it's just uh you know like geez you know yeah every now and again you get that feeling that it's two in the morning you're trying to finish a song and you you just think no one on earth can possibly be waiting for this. What <laughs> yeah. is it I'm trying yeah. to accomplish here? Yeah. <laughs> but if I don't do that, then I'm just sitting looking at the ceiling. So, you know, yeah, it's yeah. a reason to keep going. It's a choice. I think it's you a do, straight I think, choice. I think you do have to kind of, you have to kind of cast aside the kind of, you have to work in a spirit of kind of blind optimism that in some way it doesn't matter. <laughs> But it probably doesn't. And, you know, uh, you know, if you kind of think about, you know, if anyone, you know, the, there's a high, high possibility that no one gives a shit. You know, I think you just have to plough through that one. So. I woke up this morning and I look like a freak. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got a face like soup, like a monster from the deep. Do you guys, I mean, it's difficult not to detect a, a certain kind of apocalyptic bent in some of these songs. Do you guys talk about how you sort of see the world, see the music business, compare notes on your experiences in music, or is it literally just sending stuff through the ether? There's a bit of, I mean, we. I suppose we discuss a few things on, on the email and stuff, but I mean, it's generally we just sort of, it's fairly unspoken, isn't it, really? I mean, we just kind of do it and it's there's been nothing, you know, that's been kind of like, I can't work on this or, or, I, or I think I don't think I've said anything to Peter that has, you know, really kind of offended him or, or mm-hmm. <laughs> thought that thought this is just this is this really is like we, this is a step too far or, you know, and that's a good way. To, that's a good way to work. I don't think you want to be you almost want to be working on a kind of subconscious level really as peter said it's like you know i have friends i've known well and you can't i couldn't i couldn't work with them but you know this just seems to work did you do the entire thing remotely from one another sending files back and forth yeah the first record we'd never met and the record was mastered and filthy friends did a show in london and luke came and we had drinks for an hour (laughs) and then the plan was, well, of course, we're getting together to do the tour and we'll hang out and we'll make a next record in the studio. And everyone will need to go into what happened in 2020, yeah. but that didn't happen either. So the next record, at this point, I'd known Luke 
other than email for one hour and we did the entire second record and mastered it before we hung out to rehearse for the last right. tour. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting because in 1988, uh, I was working with an engineer who was making an album with Buffy St. Marie. Extraordinarily, she's a real pioneer of remote mm. working like that. Mm. He was in London. She was in America and using an ISDN line. They were sending files back and forth. They never actually met for the process. Mm. Of making it. And that's in 1988. So, you know, now That's pretty radical, yeah. So, so now it's yeah. kind of not the new normal, but I, I, I suspect a lot of people work work in this way. And it's an, there, it's an there are a lot of ways to make records, and mm-hmm. yeah. as much as I love getting in the room with a bunch of people and playing, sure. sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah. you know, honestly, if we had followed the plan and had got the five of us in a room to perform the new songs, it wouldn't sound like this. Right. And a lot of the stuff that's some of my favorite stuff on the record is completely untethered from any band existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Luke, I mentioned that I'd reread Bad Vibes and yeah. just laughed so much at your what you said the Lance Corporals of the of the Melody Maker and, and NME mm. in the mm. in the nineties. And and I was just thinking is this guy just willfully self-sabotaging or what? I mean, what, what was the fallout from, I know a little bit about the fallout from that book, but I mean, is, 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 is there still I don't know, you tell me, you tell me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a clue. I, I mean, I mean it's, it's rare to, to find someone so sort of gleefully burning bridges. Yeah. <laughs> but what, repeatedly happens is that you've sort of slagged off like Noel Gallagher. I mean, quite yeah. right, quite rightly. And then he oh, comes yeah. up to you and tells you he loves your songs. And that, yeah. there's a few examples of that, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a strange. I mean, I think if you do, I mean, what the, the aftermath of that was <clears throat> from some of the musicians, I mean, most people, a lot of people took it really well. I think if you do something with a certain amount of panache, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can get away with it. So uh, I, you know, there was some, there was people. Most people took it pretty pretty okay. Um, mm. I was surprised about. Mm. I mean, at the time, I didn't really care. I was going to say, were you disappointed? <laughs> no, I wasn't really thinking. I was when I wrote the book. I wasn't. I was thinking maybe I won't make any more records anyway. So it didn't <laughs> right. really matter. Or even if I was making records, I would. You know, that's what needed to be done at the time. And I got I got all that stuff out of my system, so it can you know. Well, I'm free to kind of go on and not have to think about the 90s too much anymore. Not that, you know, the 90s was fine. I mean, you know, without all that stuff. The thing is, without all that uh, <clears throat> Britpop stuff, we would have sold a lot less records. Mm. So we did sell, because of it, we sold more records, even though I thought it was like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> For any listeners who aren't aware, the, the subtitle of Luke's book, Bad Vibes, is Britpop and My Part in Its Downfall. It's a fascinating thing to revisit, whether it's about suede or, or pulp, or because you're on the same label as pulp mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Mm. So, yeah, I really enjoyed rereading it. Just on the subject of, of like music journalism and, you know, y- the relationships you guys have have had with music journalism and the, and the rock press, Peter. One of the the best pieces we have on Rock's Back Pages, in my opinion, is the 1994 interview you did with Anthony De Curtis about 
quote unquote rock criticism. I think it's called Rock Criticism and the Rocker. Not my title. <laughs> Not your t- I, 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 I figured it wasn't your title. It's quite a De Curtis title. From a man who at that point was, you know, one of the biggest rock stars in the world, it was, it, it's a really thoughtful conversation about the impact that music journalism had on you, as well as about REM's relationship with the, with the, with the music press. Do you remember having that conversation with Anthony? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, we were friends, and yes, you know, and I've been so much of how I learned about music was reading the journalism, and I was lucky to read things, you know, about the Velvet Underground when I was thirteen, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'll I'll go discover that band, and probably my sensibility is more in tune with someone who intellectualizes their appreciation of music as opposed to the kid who drives around in his car with an eight track drinking beer. I was that guy too. <laughs> but, but you know, rock criticism, you know, I, I find less of it exciting right now. But, you know, in the mid-70s, you know, with the Lester Bangs and all the great people going on, you really found something that you could say, okay, this is telling me something about this world that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. In that piece, you actually, you mentioned our dear friend John Mendelssohn, who probably only John Mendelssohn can rival Luke Haynes in in terms of the sort of splenetic diatribes about other musicians. Mark can bear me out here. Yeah. <laughs> John, who I think is the funniest rock writer ever. I'm not sure he's, I mean, you could probably count the number of positive pieces, Mark, couldn't you? Yeah, no, John I mean, has written I, I, on, I, I, on I one love, hand. When, when he was a guest on a podcast, he said this marvelous thing. He said, John Landau said to him one day, do you actually like rock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I also, what I kind of really picked up in, in that interview with, with Anthony is how difficult it was being like growing up in the South and sort of essentially being more interested in the New York dolls than the, the, the Allman brothers, which is probably something you have in common with, you know, the few people that followed like big star in Memphis. Right. I remember, I remember doing a big piece on, big star and talking to you know people like peter holsapple or just people who who were really really intrigued by big star because they weren't the ormond brothers and it was like how did this band come out of memphis so did you did you feel like you know you were subscribing to the village voice pitch i think when you were like you know 14 and reading about this sort of the new york bands and so forth i mean did, did you really did you feel very much like a fish out of water in Georgia? I don't think I felt like I fit in anywhere on earth, like most teenagers, Mm -hmm. you know, and partially because of the journalism I'd read and the books I was reading and just that world. It was like, yeah, nobody in this entire town listens to the same music I do. Nobody, except for my two friends who I'd managed to turn on to a couple things, you know, but I just figured like, well, that's good. I'm not like these fucking losers, you know, because <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're lovely people and all that, but Roswell, Georgia in 1971 was not a place where you wanted to think about anything. I mean, so yeah, I was, it, it was, it was a way to find myself and it, and books also, you know, mm. I mean, I was the only guy reading like Kerouac and Norman Mailer and, you know, anything of that nature mm-hmm. because no one was nobody. You couldn't find that stuff in the bookstores. You couldn't find it in the schools. It was like, I'd have to read something that someone mentioned that, oh, this was a good book. And then they'd have to go to a library 20 miles away and check it out. And it was searching was a huge part of what my life was. 
this world I'm in does not make any sense at all. So I'm going to find a world that does. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes sense to us. Was Luke. That- so I beg your pardon. Go ahead. So I was just going to ask, Peter, like at the, the end of that Anthony de Curtis piece, you talk about how you have a lot of friends who are critics because your interests are the same and you're still reading fanzines and listening to all kinds of different music. So two questions, first of which, do you still give lots of attention to just exploring as much music as you can? And second, is there an alternate universe where you might have been a music critic rather than a than a musician? Ideally, I mean... You know, I didn't think there was a chance in hell being, you know, I lived in a small town in Georgia. I never met anyone who liked the same music I liked. What's it until I got to Athens that I started meeting people who definitely had a, we had at least some similarities musically. I kind of assumed, well, maybe I'll just write about this stuff. And mm. it could have happened. I never got around to doing it, you know. Um, <laughs> sure. I don't know why. But there, well, there wasn't anywhere, to, you know, the high school newspaper, no. And you know, the the Athens Banner Herald. I mean, you know, they didn't write about music, you know, so I <laughs> think it, it was, but, it, you know, it might have been something I, I would have pursued if the band hadn't come along. Luke, did you ever read the American music press or was it just the UK Inkies when you were growing up and getting into music? Well, uh, well it was, it was, um, I started reading the kind of the music press at about 13. Um, so it would have been Sounds was what I what I used to read. I don't know why I was more drawn to sounds than the NME or the Melody Maker. And I read sounds for years. Was that your fondness for oi which led you towards sounds? <laughs> <laughs> well I, I used to like um I, I used to like I used to like Dave McCulloch's writing. Um, right. He yes, used to write yes. about all the kind of uh sort of Liverpool bands and, and the four and all those kind of things and sort of what is what I suppose what's now called post-punk. I'm not yeah, sure yeah. it ever was really at the time, but... Oh, it was, yeah, it was at the time, wasn't well, it? Well, yeah, you say that. You say that. I'm, we've, I, been I, a, we've been into search on Rock's Back Pages for the first reference to the term, Mark. Well, yeah. let, me, let, let me do that straight <laughs> away while do you do that in carry, live to, time. carry talking amongst yes. yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I obviously later on I kind of I discovered things like Cream and, you know, things like that and, uh, you know, lots of Lester Bangs, all those kind of people. But it, that seemed a very different kind of form of writing to me and you can look back on it now it's quite i mean i think some of the i think some of the kind of american stuff from the mid 70s is actually superior to to the kind of british writing of that period it seems it wasn't really until the late 70s that british writers got into their stride Funny enough, uh, the first reference I found to post-punk is Tommy john Steele. savage john savage mm-hmm. in sounds in 1978 right Okay, right. well, we'll have that then. Okay, <laughs> but there it is. But no, but that was only because he that was only he hadn't actually it wasn't coined as a thing. That was just, sure. Okay, it was just within a sentence of that something being the whatever the uh, you know. Uh, I'm trying to think of a band. Think of a band. Think of a band. I can't think of a band. The Mekons. The <laughs> yeah. Mekons yes. are post-punk. Something like yeah. that. You know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm not. Gi- I'm not giving up. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, you never do, which is great. Um, Quite right. (laughs) So part of the reason for featuring you both on the the home page this week is the the anniversaries of the first auteur single, Showgirl, and of R.E.M.'s Chronic Town EP and the classic Automatic for the People album. There's a very early R.E.M. interview from New York Rocker, January 1982, very early. Although Mark 
We have an even earlier. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely fantastic. You guys sent a demo to New York Rocker in 1981, I, it, and Gary Sparazza reviews your demo in 19, September 81 and raves about it. It's absolutely fantastic. And their, their pick hits section. And he says, uh, at the end of his review, he says, do send a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So, I mean, but to, to, for us to have a, a, a review of your demo before we released any records mm. on, on mm. Rockspack Pages gives me a great deal of pleasure. And there's also a very early uh, interview with you, Luke, from Melody Maker from oh, December God. 1992. <laughs> yeah, which was Simon Price might have been one of the earliest journalists uh-huh. to uh-huh. to remark on the auteurs. I took a show girl for my ride. Thought my life would be right. Took a bowling, got her Gonna, actually, you know, you beat me to the your question, Jasper, asking Peter whether he might, in an alternative universe, have become a, a rock critic. Um, but the same could apply to to both of you, I think, because you both write and articulate what music is so well. I mentioned Automatic for the People, and as I say, that most beloved, probably most beloved of REM albums, I don't know, is exactly 30 years old this week. Uh, for that reason, we've added an audio interview with you, Peter and Mike Mills, from August 1982, and your, the album's about to come out. Mark is going to tell us a little bit about this audio. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's very nice. I mean, actually, we can go straight into one because... Prepare to hear yourself. Prepare to hear yourself. Peter, That's horrifying. The, the ghost of <laughs> Peter Buck past. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about making the decision to not automatically tour every time you release an album, uh, which I found thinks very interesting and probably one of the reasons why as a band you managed to keep your sanity is you weren't on the, the album tour treadmill, you know, which kills so many other bands. Let's have a listen to this. It's good stuff. In the South, in Georgia, there wasn't, there isn't show, there still isn't a showbiz thing. There isn't a rock and roll, what, you know, road to success. So we kind of just made it up, and we toured and made a little independent record by ourselves, and signed a little small label, and just, you know, we were kind of approaching it as, as opposed to like some showbiz thing, just like what we do. You know, okay, we go play here, we go play there. And day to day. Yeah, as, as far as that goes, you know, so we did now. Well, we'll make a record. We won't tour this time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's. I guess it looks from the outside like there's some overall master plan going on, but you just kind of go, well, this makes sense today. You'd probably stand by that, I'm imagining, Peter. Sounds like the sort of thing you might say now. Yeah. Anyway, it's nice to hear you. I mean, I'd like to have a. I mean, I'd like to have a future plan, but I never follow it. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got all kinds of things I'd like to accomplish in the next three or four years, and we'll see if I get to any of them. But <laughs> you know, yeah, I we weren't. You know, in the background we came from, we weren't really thinking that. Oh, yeah, there's a career to be made here, and this is. You know, we didn't have a Hollywood manager. Our, our manager mm. was a guy that I knew from the record store who was mm-hmm. happened to be a lawyer. But, you know, he still manages me. He's has been my manager for 42 years. So, you know, we didn't have any of these connections where people are telling us, oh, yeah, you need to do this Spider-Man soundtrack and 
you know, do all this. It just wasn't going to, I mean, none of that was happening. It was like, yeah, we made a record. We sent it out and people would buy it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. In this interview, you talk about how you measure success. You talk about the writing of the songs, about Michael as a lyricist. Interesting, you talk about the optimal length of albums because you, you're already re reacting against the CDization of the album length when suddenly albums go from 45 minutes to 60 plus minutes. And, you know, how you find that problematic um also about kind of how bands kind of run their course and you know how some bands should have broken up before they actually broke up let's have a listen to this clip it's on that every time you make a record every time you write a song you think why am i doing this am i doing pay the mortgage you know or this is what we do like you know I mean, to a certain degree, when I was younger, I'd look at these people and go, I just want to think, quit, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, again, what, what, what am I going to do? Stay home? You know? Um, well, I mean, you know... I mean, if we start making bad records, I'll quit making records. That's right. Um, I mean, as, long as, as long as we're doing good work... And we get along. See, the thing is that most of those bands were famous from the very first day. You know, mm -hmm. it's like like the Rolling Stones, I was reading the one of those books about them. And, like, they were 19, and they'd done, like, four months of gigs, and they were playing just 5,000 screaming mm -hmm. 14 months. We played in obscurity, I mean, complete obscurity for, like, six years. You know, we had our first four records out, and nobody except for, like, <laughs> yeah, rock journalists, college kids. That was it. Didn't sell any records. So, for me, it's like we're a new band to a certain degree for, for you know, it's not like we've been in the public eye. I think it's kept us fresh. I mean, yeah, everything's, everything, everything has changed, you know, over the last five or six years, and that keeps it different. You know. I mean, you sort of allude to the fact that, you know, you were rock critics darlings for sure and college kids darlings. But I mean, I remember seeing you in January 1982 in Atlanta at the 688 Club and just being knocked out. And then you came to the Marquee, you played the Marquee in London. It was just really one of the, the greatest shows I've ever seen, Peter. In that interview with Anthony, you talk about, <laughs> the, these crazy reviews you were getting in the UK press and you say no band should get reviews like that I think mine was probably one of them because it was just so like you know wow this is just the greatest new American band one of the, one of those but it really was and I still have I still have this which was sent to me from Radio Free Europe the single I think it's worth quite a lot of money now isn't it that that hip tone single yeah, it's funny. All the guys in the REM band were uh, were on a text chain because somebody had written one of us and said, look, I managed to find one of these. It was only $200. And we're like, Jesus. And none of us own a copy of it. Nobody. Like really? We, we're like, nope. I, nope. Bill gave his to a, an ex-high school girlfriend who got drunk and left it in her car and it melted. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know where mine went. Uh, you know, and just like, yep, I, I kind of thought I'd have all that stuff, but no, I don't have any of it at all. Do you, do you guys want to start bidding for my copy? No, <laughs> you know what? I th that's, uh, I, if I had all the crap I'd put out over the years, I'd have to get another house. Uh, <laughs> I just well, got it's, four. It's I, got, I got four records that I wrote and played on in the mail last week. I'm like, where can I put these? I mean, I just don't have any space. <laughs> Yeah, but this is like a holy relic. Come on. It's such a great record, too. I mean, I just remember putting on Radio Free Europe the first time and just thinking, oh, wow, this is just so much better than all this 
terrible pop music that's coming out of London right now. But that was that was just me. <laughs> Luke, uh, it's probably a good thing that since you, you you're rude about just about everybody else in bad vibes, you mm. don't you don't say anything about REM. That's probably no. a good thing. What no. did you? Th- what what was your take on on? <laughs> what was your take on REM in in the in the eighties and before you you met Peter? Well, they were. Kind of, I mean, it's one of those things that they were. Album number three hangs in the balance here. Yeah, there was no. There was it was a thing that was kind of there that was no one was kind of how do you say that it's, when I did my okay here you go I think when I did one of my about my third gig in one of my teenage bands we were pretty good actually we were all right we weren't that bad um we had some of our own songs and some guy came up to me and he said have you heard of REM and I said no he said you want to get their album Murmur because your stuff sounds a bit like that it didn't but I got Murmur <laughs> so from there on I've always sort of been, I've been into it. I like Monsters, my favourite album. So, I, we were playing "What's the Frequency," Kenneth, earlier today, and uh, it's still, it still really rocks, Peter. I think mm. it's, it's a, it never fails to get me off my seat. I love that track. What's the frequency, Kenneth? The show, so Peter, what did you make of like? the auteurs and perhaps Britpop in general what was your were you kind of aware of it at all you were just (laughs) like floating above it no uh, you know I I always read and I always buy the records I actually got an advanced cassette of the auteurs record I remember doing you know Monster was about to come out and we're doing some big BBC it was like I think it was I can't remember what it was but you know the woman asked who I was listening to and I said oh you know I think the auteurs are the best band in this whole Britpop thing. And she goes, well, why? I said, well, they write real songs, first of all, which wasn't necessarily the case with everyone in Britpop. I, I love a lot of those bands. Yeah. But O'Tours are my favorite of the group. I mean, that first record alone is just super classic songwriting. And then when it totally went off the rails, I thought it was even better. Yeah, I liked it when it, off the ra- when it went off the rails. Um, Can I, I just say what we, we what we did say on tour, Peter and I? Um, we we had a, we had a discussion sort of about the nineties, and we both agreed that. And I'm saying this without any kind of irony at all. That the first Menswear album is a lot better than the Oasis albums. Um, <laughs> we both. I mean, that was that's genuine. It's not meant right. to be. Uh, I'm not taking the piss out of Menswear or anything like that. But that that was a kind of genuine conversation that we had. So it's worth putting that out there. <laughs> we were on tour in England, and you know, I'd read about Menswear every day for like you know, the whole month. And Scott McCoy picked up Melody Baby and goes, woohoo, the second menswear single's out. It's like, <laughs> I would assume they had five albums that didn't written about to such a degree. And I did kind of, I did like the record, actually. You know, I felt sorry for him because you could see how it was going to go yeah, yeah, yeah. afterwards. So the menswear revival starts here? Well, let's not go too far. But. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember menswear were one of those kind of Camden, but you write quite a lot about Camden. You lived in Camden. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And they sort of fell foul of that rather, you know, sort of hedonistic Mm. life, didn't they? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, you know, it's it's a thing that kind of gets close to – 
it gets close to the serious point about it is it gets close it's always gone on in pop music but it gets close to abuse and exploitation of very young kids by adults who should know a lot better or don't because they're you know I don't want to get too moralistic about it but that's a lot of that was going on a lot of very young bands were getting signed up and given much more money than they knew what to do with and their career you could tell you could just I could see people's careers of like you've got a career of two singles not that anyone should think of if you're doing this you shouldn't really think of it as a career or anything but it's just what it is it's just like you know if you're still here like fucking five thousand years later as i am then you know well done me or something i don't know but <laughs> that's sort of what was happening yeah. there's a lot of kind of much older guys a and r guys who are probably in their mid-30s sort of chucking a lot of bad stuff at 19 year old kids it's the way yeah. i read that's the way i read it now Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do either of you miss like being in bands like on a day to day kind of basis? Do you ever pine for those days? Or are you quite happy being sort of more or less free agents and able to do things like the records you've done together? I well, I don't want to be in a band. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not with the band, as Sylvia Patterson said. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Peter, what about you? I feel really lucky to have had the experiences I had and have no interest in repeating them. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of times I wish that I played more, but I could, you know, I play every day at my house. I write songs every day. And, you know, I think I'm going to have three or four records out this year that I co-wrote and co-produced or whatever. But yeah, I don't think I want to tie myself to that year-long process of, oh, we're going to make a record, then we're going to tour, and we're going to mm. do the video. It's like, oh, all that stuff just makes my skin crawl now. Mm. You know, I'm looking forward to touring with Luke in February. And actually, Luke, you'll be getting a track for me, like, in two days that I just finished. So I was, um, going, to ask, I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah. We, um, <laughs> it, was meant, it was meant to be arriving on Monday, but, you know. <laughs> well, I, I recorded it on Monday, and Scott still has to put the bass on and mix it. So oh. he might be doing a synth job, too. So nice. it should be soon. Nice. Oh, I'm glad we were able to, you know, facilitate an exclusive. Yeah, that's that's going out on on the internet immediately mm. after this. So, listen, well, thanks both of you. Uh, we haven't had time to talk about so many other things. Uh, Barda Meinhof, Black Box Recorder. I reviewed um, the Black Box Recorder album that had the fact. Was it the first first one that had the facts of life on it? Great no, record. That's, no, that's the second, second one. Second yeah. one. England made me was the. England first was the first one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I still love the fact of life. It's still on my, you know. What, what about the first one? Don't you like that? <laughs> I do. No, I just, no. I'm just talking about the facts of life itself. <laughs> that track, I think, is just such a classic. And okay, it, right. It's yeah. still on my kind That's, of yeah, good, playlist. Good. It pops up from time to time. And I always enjoy it. It's just the facts of life. Thank you both of you for sharing, you know, sharing your reflections and, and, and recollections of, of bygone days. Please stick around to just chip in with any thoughts you might have. And we, we, we need to talk about Pharaoh Sanders, who died on September 24th. So it's what I'm going to hand over to, you know, I'm a, I'm a jazz ignoramus. So I usually hand over to my colleagues to, to, to tell us a bit about the greatness of Pharaoh Sanders. So, you know, Mark, what's, what's your take on on the great man 
Well, I, I, I think he's just he's tremendously interesting because what he did was so varied that, that more than any of his... I mean, his guy emerged as part of John Coltrane's late band in, in, in the mid-60s, but he ne- was never locked into that particular area or way of playing. So the, the sheer variety of the stuff is astonishing. I mean, Jasper, you're a yeah. pretty big fan, yeah? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you know... I- what stuff do you particularly like? I love, I mean, starting with the most recent thing, I think the album that he did last year with Floating Points and the LSO yeah. London Symphony Orchestra is just a wonderful record. It's beautiful. It's, it's really it is beautiful. very, very beautiful and very moving. And I think it's a, a fitting kind of end point to his recording career. And I think going back, I mean, we were talking the other day about the, the Alice Coltrane oh, album that he stuff. did. And, yeah. and you know, the, the early 70s when he's really kind of exploring the, the more the sort of spiritual jazz kind of angle. But yeah, massively varied, incredible tone, incredible sound, so focused on just the texture of sound yeah. and those, I mean, the sheets of sound as, as, as it's often referred to. I just find that it's it's imbued with a lot of feeling and you can tell that through playing so much free stuff, when he then does come to a more structured surrounding, it mm-hmm. gives him this he kind of gets to gets to float down onto it rather than yeah, having yeah. to build up to it. I don't know. I, it, yeah, I, no, I, I, I think he's he's capable of, of a sort of beauty that actually not many of his contemporaries were, where a lot of those people who came out of free jazz hyper-aggressive. I mean, I think to some extent people like Albert Eilert sort of falls slightly into that category, whilst Pharaoh sort of actually is, was capable of producing great beauty as a, as a, as a tenor player. He, so, does retain, he does retain a sort of, sort of kind of melodic yeah, thing quite a lot of much. time, which you get, you do, which is less so, like you said, with like, the likes of Albert Eilert. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd be, I was actually, oddly enough, I've been, the last six months or so I've been playing the Karma album. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot. It's one of those things, and I, I like the, I, I like the fact that there's kind of, there's almost sort of like, although they're kind of long kind of mantras and stuff, there's there's sort of songs yes. on it, but it's actually, you know, there's actually lyrics and stuff like that, yeah. which yeah. is quite, str- you know, like I suppose like you know, I guess you know, like the Coltrane thing, you know, when they suddenly kind of go into a chant and that sure. stuff. Yeah. Sure. Yes, yes. It's worth mentioning that Don Snowden, the great LA writer who now resides in Valencia, but was a sort of mainstay of, of the LA scene, has written, especially for us, a very personal homage to appreciation of, of Sanders, which, which is the main piece in the longer bisection on the homepage. But there's also an interview that Chris Ingham did with Sanders in 2000. It's just mm-hmm. a short piece, but there's some nice quotes in there. Peter, are you a, are you a, are you a sort of Sanders fan? Are you, are you someone who you listen to? I know you have very eclectic tastes. Yeah. You know, I, I probably wasn't really familiar with him until the eighties, you know, mm-hmm. and I, there wasn't really any critical consensus. I didn't read a lot of jazz writing. So I just kind of bought records used and played them. Yeah. And, Love them. I, you know, I think the the more free and out there he got, the more I liked it. You know, because you know I write song structures, so to hear some someone working on something that's not structured but is really f- emotional is great. Mm-hmm. That said, the Floating Points record is not what I look for from him, but it was still really beautiful. I mean, it was very composed. It was it, there wasn't a lot of freeform stuff. It was no, no. you know. But it was just a really great piece of music, and I thought it was an interesting way to use his talent. Right at the end, it builds up, and like it, as you say, it's very composed and very kind of yeah mellow in a way. I mean, Don Snowden 
mentions that in his piece that he hasn't actually listened to it, but it sounded a bit laid back for my tastes. Uh, it is extremely, you know, laid back, but also very beautiful. And I think when it builds up to those sheets of sound moments, they're all the more potent for the contrast they provide to what's preceded them. For me, I just, I, when it's just eventually after like half an hour, 40 minutes explodes into this wall of, saxophone it's it's i find it magical beautiful it's really nice to hear from all of you on pharaoh sanders Also lost the the rapper Coolio yesterday or day before yesterday. Most famous, obviously, for you know Gangsters Paradise, which was a huge hit. I don't have a huge amount to say about him. I, mean, I think of him as a, almost like a, a one hit wonder. Has not been a particularly important figure in hip hop really for a long time. A bit of a sort of clownish figure i mean mark are you do, where, how would you contextualize yeah I Coolio? Mean, well very very similar my experience with him is very similar to yours it's based essentially the one hit we were listening in the office today to some of his stuff and what strikes me is how slow and sluggish so much of it is you know it's by hip-hop I mean, let's see he's loosely a contemporary of the the Compton, the NWA, and all that, that sort of group mm, of people. Yes. And they're a lot funkier. Dre as a producer is a lot funkier. Coolio's stuff really isn't funky. It's, no. it's, 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 it's very slow. It's quite stodgy, which gives it a sort of certain mad elegance, I think you could say. You know, But am I a huge fan? No, can't pretend. I like the fact that he wanted to be a cook. You know, he, he's, In 2013, <laughs> he started selling, selling off his music rights to fund his career as a chef. And he had a cooking show and published a book, Cooking with Coolio. Five-star meals at a one-star price. I rate that. <laughs> good good uh, man. Do Luke, Peter, do either of you possess any of Coolio's cookery books? No, but I do. The only, my, my only comment really is, uh, 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 is that uh, you mentioned the facts of life and the, the string, the kind of synth string part was directly ripped off of Gangster's Paradise. Oh, nice. that record. So nice. if you just, if you and listen to didn't. that, and uh, yeah, yes. Oh, it all makes sense. Didn't that come from a Stevie Wonder record? Probably, yes. yeah, probably. Past so. Time Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There so you go, yeah, a... yeah. Oh, well. uh, you yeah. know, I, I met him once, and we, we talked about politics for 20 minutes. It was on election eve, and he was kind of dumbfounded about how Bush could win. And I was like, well, it's kind of the people in Ohio right now. And he goes, man, fuck Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I, that is why my moment was cooler. Very <laughs> good. Excellent. That's wonderful. I love the fact that I imagine that probably was it's what an awards show or something. You must have, it's, in situations like that, you must have had conversations with people you probably wouldn't have had conversations with yeah. otherwise. I, actually, we were in a bar watching the, the whichever election it was. I think it was 2005. Okay. And, okay. yeah, and he, he was just like, Man, I don't get this. I'm like, <laughs> I don't really get it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if he was still alive, no doubt, as as we kind of limber up to midterms and the prospect of Trump's return, he might still be saying, fuck Ohio <laughs> and fuck Indiana and fuck Montana and a lot of other American states. 
anyway, so Coolio is. I think, as I said, I think he was only fifty years old. So that's that's a very young age to 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 go. But I don't know what's cooking. They say I got to learn, but nobody's here to teach me. If they can't understand it, how can they reach me? I guess they can't. I guess they won't. I guess they front. That's why I know my life is out of luck, fool. Mark. Jasper, do you have any pieces you want to just briefly tell us about? I've got a few um, from last week. Uh, Maureen Cleave, who, as everyone regular regular listeners to this podcast will know, I'm rather keen on as a writer. She went with the Beatles to New York in 1964, their very first visit, and reported it basically every day. We got we got about four or five of these, which were going up one after the other. And she, this is the first one. She talks about the actual how they're greeted at the airport. She, and she talks about the fans saying, we want the Beatles, they cried indiscriminately as they waved banners saying, Beatles stay here, and Beatles unfair to bald men. And curiously enough, England get out of Ireland. So yeah. like, <laughs> I just love that. Right, Dennis Wilson, been interviewed by Richard Green for the enemy in June 69. I've lived in a beautiful home in Beverly Hills, in harems, in the mountains, with a family, but where I like best is where I am now. Obviously, the family is the, the Manson family, which uh, had yet to sort of be exposed. But later on, at the very end of the interview, Mike Love is kind of the Richard Green starts asking Mike Love some questions. Mike Love comes out with some really repellent stuff about his bandmates. And this is him on Brian Wilson. He says, he is completely ignorant of the situation, except he knows there are a few thousand dollars hanging around the bank, and that's broke to him. He has not got the business acumen to know about it. He enjoys being in a muddle by virtue of being sorry for himself. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that, that's fucking charming, Mike, you know. But then <laughs> <laughs> Holly Graham Nash, to be interviewed by Nick Jones in 67, he says, youth is beautiful. It's also innocent. All that we'd like to do, all that I feel one should do, is teach people things so that they grow up to be nice people. So this is like, you know, the proto-hippie Holly Graham Nash, who's on his way to see Crosby and Stills, uh, even, even two years before the fact. Last thing from last week I'd like to mention is uh, Leon Russell live at Roll Up Hall London, reviewed by Mark Plummer. That's a, it's a fine review. He likes it a lot. My little story is it was my 15th birthday. It was about a, a couple of weeks before this. This is February 71. And my parents had given me enough money to go to see a band at the Albert Hall. I got tickets to see this concert, Leon Russell. They also gave me enough money to take my friends out to a seed the macrobiotic restaurant on Westbourne Park Road. And it just turned out there was also enough money to buy three caps of very, very good LSD and a, and a lump of Lebanese hash. <laughs> so we, we get to the Albert Hall, high as kites. And at the bottom of the bill is Status Quo, who at that point were just reinventing themselves as a boogie band. And so I have this memory of them sort of jumping up and down in the lights and you know the, the acid sort of doing the trick with that, while the whole of the Albert Hall was like velvet going dark and light and dark and light. Second on the bill was Juicy Lucy, who had, had a hit with Who Do You Love, that version of Who Do You Love. They were pretty good. Grease Band were next on the bill, Joe Cocker's old backing band, who were lovely. They were playing sort of like limber sort of country funk, not a million miles away from the sort of music the band were playing around that sort of time. And then Leon Russell came on. Uh, he had Claude Lanier wearing little more than a black string vest. And it was the best show I've ever seen in my life. It was absolutely astonishing. And years later, Don Nix, who was part of the Leon Russell organisation, says that was the best show he ever saw Leon Russell play.
this week, what have we got? Otis Redding being reviewed by Pete Johnson in the LA Times in April 1966. He's playing the whiskey. And he says, Redding drives each number mercilessly, shouting and preaching each song with relentless energy through the enormous sound of his band. Redding was assured of an in-group following Thursday night when, among his spectators, emerged Bob Dylan, trailed mm. by an entourage of camp followers. Yeah, that's is... quite famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think Rotis wanted him to, to write a song for him, didn't he? He said, I'll ask Dylan to write him a song. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's my lot. But I, I yeah. just thought I'd chuck in the Leon Russell story. Just so yeah, very... what a degenerate 15-year-old I was. <laughs> Leon Russell ever mean anything to you, Peter, as a, as a, you know, as a, as a Southern American? Yeah, I, I saw, I think it's, you can find it on the web. It's this Leon Russell live on like KNET or something from 1969. And yes, it had Claudia Lanier in a bikini top. Yeah, And <laughs> I was watching it at my parents' house because I was 12 or whatever. And my dad was just completely silent watching the thing. And I don't think he was digging the music. And I loved the music. And Leon Russell was the first or second real rock concert I went to when I was 13. Oh, right, wow. right in Georgia, and wow. at the the local wrestling arena. <laughs> Fantastic, excellent. excellent. I mean, because because I mean, I adored the Mad Dogs and Englishmen album, and and that was what led me to Leon Russell very directly was Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Who's who is this guy who put this band together and so on? Mm. Um, mm. Fantastic noise. It was just mm. great. Bring things full circle. John Mendelssohn wrote the the very short like liner notes for, for Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Did you did you know no, that, Mark? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jasper, have you got anything Yeah, I, I've us? got a couple of things to mention. First, which I added a few weeks ago, is Arif Mard in an interview Tom Doyle did with him in Sound on Sound in July 2004, which is very nice, very, you know, Sound on Sound, relatively technical magazine. Mardin claims to be anything but an equipment head. So this is more of a technical interview, he wonders, a slight touch of trepidation in his voice. The only problem is if you ask me about which blah blah do you use for this, I can only tell you it's the blue one or the red one. I know what they can do, <laughs> but I don't really follow every technical magazine. But he goes into his mixing technique about how it's informed by his time back at Atlantic in the 50s and 60s. Tom Dowd used to say, voice and bass, make them zero. Then the kick may be half a decibel softer and the rest just sprinkled around. That's why when <laughs> Ahmet Ertegen heard Tommy's work when he was 16 years old, he said, this young boy has the correct bass and drum level to my liking. Hire him. That was the R&B sound. <laughs> I just think it's a, it's a lovely oh, that's, interview. That's fabulous. Well, I, I, I'm sure we, we all revere the late Arif Mardin. I think he was some kind of genius oh, yeah. as an arranger and, and producer. I really do. Do we all love Arif Mardin's records? Yes. I, I, I'm not aware. <laughs> I'm afraid. I, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it depends. I mean, how central is black music to your life? And it just so happens that, in a couple of our cases, certainly, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Barney and Jasper and myself all say that black music is mm -hmm. absolutely central, and some of his stuff is just mm -hmm. just sensational, exquisitely mm -hmm. good. Yeah, yeah. Next up is um, an interview with Harry Styles, or a comment on Harry Styles, teen star turned serious player from 2017, Jude Rogers in the Observer, which I thought was interesting because it feels like he's having a bit of a moment now in 2022 with what is it? Don't worry, darling, the film that he's in and all that drama and all, I don't know what's going on with that. But I like this piece because better still styles is happy to celebrate the young women who supported his career from the start as he did loudly when asked if he was worried about proving his credibility to older, cooler people. Who's to say that young girls who like pop music have worse musical taste than a 30 year old hipster guy. 
that's not up to you to say, which I kind of rate, you know, just just back yeah. it. And then lastly, uh, how we made car wash, Rose Royce, Dave Simpson does in The Guardian. And it's it's one of those pieces where they go and, you know, look back on how it was all done. But Gwen Dickey, the singer in Rose Royce, just tells a story of meeting Norman Whitfield. I was singing in a band called The Jewels and was spotted and recommended to Norman Whitfield. I had no idea he was a legendary Motown songwriter and producer. I went to meet him at his mansion in Beverly Hills and said, sir, why do you have all these gold and platinum records on your walls? He dropped to the floor and laughed for 20 minutes. Later, everyone went, the Norman Whitfield, the Temptations, Marvin Gaye. But I was this little girl from Biloxi in Mississippi. I never read the names on the back of albums. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike us guys here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's great. Fantastic. Well, listen, it's been an absolute blast speaking with you fine gentlemen. We wish you the very best of luck with the new album, which I think is out in a few weeks, isn't it? Officially um... out end of October. End of October, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then I think it's probably out in America that month later or something. I don't know. It's out on an American label. I can't remember what the label is. So. You can't remember the name of the label. No. That's it's, it's, it's quite a lot in itself. But it's Cherry Red here. It's Cherry and, Red here, and it's yes. a label in America. It's a, a label in America. You heard it here first, folks. The album yes. is coming out. You'll find label. it. You'll find it. Yeah. It's a great name, find actually, out. Tune for in. a label. Yeah, a label in America. Yeah, yeah. Tune in on the 28th of October yeah. to find yeah. out why all the kids are super bummed out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, so thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Go to Rock's Back Pages, subscribe. It might be worth finding out whether your local library subscribes. And if it doesn't, why don't you ask them? to at least trial Rock's Back Pages. <laughs> There's a hell of a lot there, 50,000 articles, 800 audio interviews. It is a veritable museum of popular music. So listen, it just remains for us to thank you both, Luke and Peter, for joining us today. Yeah, fantastic. And Peter, you. you can probably go back to bed now if you want. I know it's very early for you in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. <laughs> thank you both, guys. And All we'll right. be back in, in two weeks. But thanks, and we'll say goodbye at this point. Thanks. Bye-bye. That concludes episode 137 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guests Luke Haynes and Peter Buck. Their new album, All the Kids Are Super Bummed Out, is out October 28th on Cherry Red. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Don't be in a stop.